0: Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want.
1: Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Show number 129, Give the People What They Want, brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Coming to you live everywhere that you watch us. Also, of course, available as a podcast. Tell your friends to join us. Send us your selfies. Of course, we should begin and have to begin with the terrible train accident in Balasore um, in Orissa when the Chennai Shalimar Coromandel Express um, collided in a way with the bogies flying up and so on. A very sad accident um, with the Super Superfast Express train. Two trains, they run at around 100-some kilometers an hour Um, 300 people dead, 1,000 people in hospital with injuries and so on. A great tragedy. Um, The Indian government has asked for an inquiry. But it's a sad thing that um, only about 2% of the Indian train lines have fail-safes, apparently. And I hope that these inquiries are not just going to be about this accident, but look wider at the number of near misses as well that seem to take place on the Indian Railway. Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal, uh, curiously, in a fact-free environment, came up with an article about a Chinese spy base being built in Cuba. Incredible. And what made that article even more incredible was that the denials by the Cuban government was not as important as the fact that the U.S. Pentagon felt the need to come out there and say that there was nothing in this article. Wall Street Journal Formerly a reputable paper that, you know, commands the attention of the financial elite. Um, Remarkable, nonsensical story. But there it is, friends. That's the news. It's a good thing you have People's Dispatch at your service bringing you what you want. Let's start with a good story, Prashant, because, I mean, you know, it is extraordinary what is happening in the state of Kerala in India. It's extraordinary. Um, Everybody in Kerala can now watch give the people what
2: they want. Well, at least in the coming years, that's definitely a prospect because uh, the government in Kerala has launched what is called the K-Phone project, the official launch took place just a few days ago. Now, this is a very interesting project because it uh, follows what happened a couple of years ago, which is that the government declared that the internet would be a basic right uh, for everyone and it would work towards that. And uh, unlike in the rest of the country where... The internet uh you know internet connectivity internet services are slowly being monopolized in fact uh because india's richest one of uh, currently probably india's richest man mukesh ambani owns one of the biggest internet companies uh, or internet services in the country and is really capturing a large share of the market what the kerala government has decided to do is to provide internet connectivity to uh people starting with of course the poorest people in the state and uh, i think the idea is to start off with maybe about 2 million people who are, you know, the poorest uh, bracket in the state and free internet connections will be provided to all of them over the course of some time. So I think already the first batch of people has been identified. There's a lot of work going on to actually identify even more people uh, who are who are in need of it. And this is one of those things that will actually transform uh, the state because, you know, uh, especially during the pandemic, I think a lot of people felt in the, clear impact of the digital divide because a lot of education went uh, online people really struggled with the phones with devices Uh, you know especially students coming from poorer backgrounds there was this huge gap because of connectivity and one of the attempts of this project is actually to start bridging that gap so in fact there are reports of how uh, some of this connectivity has actually gone to say tribal areas uh, where which hitherto have not been Uh, served by the traditional network so that's also a very important measure this is also uh, part of you know and this is actually not just some kind of top-down process because it's a local self-governing bodies which have the responsibility of identifying these beneficiaries so it's also very uh, you know grassroots driven process in that sense and it's uh, also of course all all, I think about 30,000 government offices will also be connected uh, with this kind of service. So, at a time when the prevailing logic is of privatization, and that has really not changed despite all these years, Kerala again uh, with this uh, with its left government, with the CPIM-led government, is trying to provide a different alternative. This is, of course, not the first instance. Some years ago, a couple of years ago, there was news about a paper factory, I believe, which was you know, which had pretty much, uh, say, completely gone into, uh, was not functional, being taken over by the government and then uh, reopened, so to speak. There have been reports of, for instance, more students returning to government schools because of the focus on education. And again, to come back to this project, this is not just providing uh, internet connectivity alone. That's part of the project. But on the other side, there is also an increased digitization, a digital literacy program that is taking place. Again, very interesting to read the reports about that. Uh, again, local-based solutions, uh, You know, uh, people of cooperatives, people, uh, government officials, all coming together to identify those who are not digitally literate in each municipality. They started with one pilot project and then they were educating these people in how do you use your, uh, you know, how do you use the internet? How do you make digital payments? Uh, how do you access accounts? So I think so 3,000 people some uh, some months ago were declared Officially, digitally, uh, you know, literate, and of course, Kerala is also well known in India as a state with the highest literacy rates. As well, there was a very powerful literacy mission which functions. So, in some senses, this is a continuation of that. And I think this is an important story because, I mean, often some of these alternatives and initiatives don't really get talked about so much. We talk a lot about how social media giants and tech giants are basically capturing the internet, and you know, it often seems like a very hopeless kind of a discussion that we have but these kind of initiatives provide the seeds of hope maybe there's a lot more to do no doubts about that but the idea that a government at this at this stage in our, of capitalist development is a government which says this is our job and this is your right is a very refreshing example
1: indeed it is i mean i i think it's so important to talk about Um, the lack of connectivity uh, as much as anything in the rest of the world. Zoe, you know, uh, I've been looking at data, given the pictures coming from New York City. I was looking at more numbers, you know, as I said, numbers of people who are not connected to the internet. Well, what about numbers of people who breathe bad air? The WHO, the World Health Organization, says more than 99% of the world's population breathes air that is above the health guidelines of the WHO, 99%. I didn't realize that 7 million people die every year because of air pollution. But somehow, you know, we are transfixed. Something happened in New York City. Uh, What's the story?
0: Well, that's right. This week, uh, New York City, which is normally in the 1% globally in terms of air quality, um, reaching, uh, never reaching above kind of uh, healthy qual- air quality, never reaching these uh, dangerous and hazardous uh, conditions. Um, this week was in for a bit of a surprise during these uh, raging wildfires in Quebec. Uh, in Canada, they, uh, the smoke from these fires uh, drifted over the northeast of the United States and in New York City on Wednesday, not only was the air, the outside, this orange-yellow haze that many people said looked like a sepia tone um, from a movie or a photo, but also the air quality was at, uh, according to the air quality index, was at hazardous levels, which means that it was over 400. Um, These are levels that are unsafe, essentially for anyone to go outside in. Um, Extremely concerning, and as you said, this is a reality for as 99% of the world's population, um, the air smelling like burned toast, smelling like uh, smokiness. Um, many, many people very concerned over this. Of course, as I said, New York normally has extremely high quality air, um, not something that people are used to. Um, and I think what, what many people are pointing out to is not only the fact that many people deal with this on a daily basis, but also this is likely to continue. Um, and so places like uh, the United States, which of course many areas of the country are already affected by severe climate change. We know that in California, this is a uh, cons- uh, an occurrence that happens quite often with the wildfires that happen there. Um, but in these areas that have been sort of untouched they're more and more frequently going to be feeling the impacts of climate change, feeling more floods, more wildfires, Um, which uh, Natalia Marquez of People's Dispatch spoke to Tina Landis, who's a um, environmental uh, researcher. And she was saying that actually what's interesting is that not only is it that there are more wildfires, but the strategy of forest fire prevention, which has just been to completely suppress even the natural fires has made it so that these fires are more frequent because there's more buildup of timber, there's more buildup of this debris that normally would burn um, because the way that uh, forest management happens, especially in the North American region, was that there would be periodic fires. This is the way that the Native American uh, nations really managed it. And uh, since colonization of North America, that this whole system of maintenance has been completely turned on its head, there's more debris, there's more instability in these systems, uh, cutting down large swaths of forest where before there was more integration. And so uh, essentially with the unbridled exploitation of these forests, of uh, of this land, we're going to see this even more. And we've already seen wildfires increasing in frequency across Europe, across uh, many regions of the world. And we got a little taste of that this week in North America uh, the fires are continuing in Quebec, but this uh, smoke is uh, drifting in other parts of the country. It seems like today, by today and tomorrow, levels should be continuing to decrease. We're only at dangerous level right now, not at hazardous anymore. Um, but it's really important to point out, as you said, that these are conditions that are already a reality for many people across the world. And again, if, if serious action isn't taken, this is going to continue and get worse.
1: It's a terrible thing, but at the same time, firefighters from around the world have been arriving in Canada, including from South Africa and other places, to offer um, their very important service to people um, in the Americas. Solidarity works in very interesting and powerful ways. Um, Meanwhile, on the 3rd of June, a, a couple of North American military vessels, a um, American destroyer, guided missile destroyer, and a Canadian frigate were near Chinese territorial waters when they were cut off by a Chinese warship. Um, this set of alarm bells, the video of this was uh, shown around the world, showing the Chinese warship going in front and so on. Um, United States immediately condemned China for provocation. The Chinese came back and said, well, you're provoking us because you are uh, in or near our territorial waters. Um, This kind of incident continues to happen largely because the United States and its allies, including in this case the Canadians, insist on conducting what they call freedom of navigation exercises, exercises that the United States started uh, in different waters in 1979. Now, interestingly, and I've mentioned this before on our show, the United States is not a signatory of the 1982 uh, United Nations Convention on the laws of the sea, which provides the legal um, you know, mandate to do freedom of navigation exercises. Despite not being a signatory to the convention, the US is the most vigorous uh, power to conduct these navigation, freedom of navigation exercises. Now, just while this was happening in the Shangri-La Hotel in Singapore, Um, the dialogue was held, which is an annual security dialogue that's been going on since 2002. At this dialogue, um, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was present, but so was his Chinese counterpart, Defense Minister Li Shang Fu. And it was instructive to listen to the two of them. You know, both of them suggested publicly that these encounters are very dangerous. I thought that was interesting. Lloyd Austin said this is a very dangerous encounter and made even more dangerous by the fact that the US and Chinese militaries are not actually communicating with each other. I thought that was a very important admission uh, from Mr. Austin. Mr. Lee as well said, look, these incidents happen. They are not advisable. Nobody wants incidents like this to continue. On the other hand, he said that, look, let's be frank here. United States is not here for innocent passage. You're here to provoke, um, you know, some kind of encounter. Meanwhile, at the Shangri-La meeting, it was very interesting that the United States continued to try and bring together as the kind of glue uh, countries around China by kind of intensifying disputes around island chains. And the United States has been bringing together unlikely powers. For instance, in February of this year, an underreported story. Japan and Philippines conducted a security agreement which is going to allow Japanese soldiers to be in the Philippines. Well, those discussions were deepened in Singapore. At the same time, as I thought, fairly sober comments from Lloyd Austin of the United States and Li Shang-Fu from China, very sober statements, the need for more communication, more collaboration, and so on. The dangers that these Uh, Communication less situation produces. You had that. Well, then, but the United States is intensifying this Australia, Japan, South Korea, Philippines military alliance against China. Uh, Rough seas in the South China Sea and in the Eastern Seas. Very rough waters, dangerous waters. Well, one hopes at some point these militaries will start to adjust their orientation and at least communicate with each other. You're with. Give the people what they want. Brought to you from People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant, peoplesdispatch.org, your movement news source. Hope you go there every day. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Very happy to be with you. We're going to shift gears. Zoe has published a piece at People's Dispatch about events going on at Colombia. Please go and read it. Zoe, you know this country more than most people outside the country. What has been happening in Colombia? Talks of coups and so on. What's the reality?
0: Well, this is something we've been, of course, following. And anyone who's been watching the show knows me make many jokes about we're always talking about Colombia. But it's also because it's such a crucial country to follow to really understand what's happening, the shifts that are happening uh, in the region. And right now, Colombia is at a very crucial moment. So uh, we followed the campaign of Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez, their election, their swearing in. And we've always been wary and we've always discussed the fact that the Colombian oligarchy uh, is has been in power for over six decades, has very entrenched, has entrenched itself in um, the economy, in all of the different... Uh, systems um, in Colombia and that, you know, the election of a progressive government, like we've seen in so many other countries of the region, does not mean that it's game over. It doesn't mean that the struggles end. It doesn't mean that it is a smooth sailing from there on out. And especially in a country like Colombia, which, as I said, uh, the, the ruling class has really enjoyed so many privileges for so many decades by being in power and commanding many sectors of life. And so um, since Gustavo Petro and Francis Marquez has taken office, they've of course faced a number of challenges from all parts of, um, you know, whether it's the media, whether it's the uh, established uh, economic sectors, the business sectors, um, whether it's from within their own coalition. We know that they had a very, very broad coalition to get elected, electing a former member of a left-wing guerrilla group is not going to happen unless you make very, very broad alliances. It's just not possible, especially, again, in Colombia. So uh, Gustavo Petro has been facing a series of attacks, and these have really increased um, in response to his uh, government and the historic PAC coalition bloc in Congress, their attempts to pass three crucial reforms. This is the healthcare reform the pension reform and the labor reform; these were sort of the building blocks, the cornerstone of the platform of Francia Marquez and Gustavo Petro in what they call this government of change. Um, again, as we've covered at People's Dispatch extensively, uh, Colombia is one of the con- is one of the most unequal countries in the region, um, with people having severely difficult access to healthcare, to education, to other basic rights. Um, that, for example, in countries like Venezuela and Cuba are enshrined in their constitutions as human rights, as things that the government must provide for them. In Colombia, to access health care, uh, thanks to the law passed by Alvaro Uribe when he was uh, when he was a senator, um, it is you have to go through a number of hoops. There's a uh, private insurance intermediary there's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of private companies that actually benefit over on the fact that it's a private system um, that makes it very hard for people. They have to pay a lot of money to get care. And so there's serious interests up against uh, this being reformed, being more uh, public, being uh, an easier uh, system for the people where workers can get um, better compensation, et cetera. And so there've been a number of attacks uh, to the government. Right-wing congressmen have said they will They will do everything in their power to make sure these reforms don't get passed, which is hardly a democratic attitude. And alongside all of these attacks against the government because of the reforms, a scandal emerges, which is essentially uh, in many ways pushed forward and manufactured by Semana magazine, which has been at the forefront of these attacks against Gustavo Petro before he was elected and now during his time as president. Um, And this scandal essentially involves uh, two former members of the government, a domestic worker that worked for both of them, a scandal involving this person stealing money, and then the employers allegedly wiretapping, interrogating, et cetera. It was all really blown out of proportion and essentially made to sound like Gustavo Petro himself was telling these people in his government to do this and essentially used as a entry point for the right wing to say that he should step down, that he's irresponsible, corrupt, all of these allegations over a sort of small-scale scandal regarding members of his government. Um, And in response to this, in response to these continued attacks, trade union movements have said, we're going to take the streets, we're going to mobilize in support of this government. We've seen what happens in Peru when the social movements are unable to defend the government. We've seen what happens when the the government and the social movements lose touch and don't have this kind of dialectic relationship of support, of demands, of actually being in the streets to support these governments. And that's what's happening. Gustavo Petro just arrived in Cuba um, for the closing of the third cycle of peace talks between the government and the ILN. Big announcement expected there. We'll definitely be following along as well.
1: Well, to read more, go and see Zoe's article. She interviews Colombian Congresswoman Maria Fernanda Karaskal, who gives the title to the article, we will not give in to blackmail. Meanwhile, Nigeria has a new president. Um, Prashant, you just spoke to uh, leading Nigerian journalist Chido Onunwa uh, for People's Dispatch. How do we understand the new government in Nigeria? Right, uh, Vijay, of course, uh, the
2: new president of Nigeria, Bola Tinubu. like I said, he's a very uh, experienced political player. Uh, known for his governorship of Lagos and, uh, you know, establishing a huge patronage network. But when he took charge and he won an election, which was, to put it lightly, very controversial, there's still a case going on about whether he actually did win it. The verdict is expected by September. And it is to be remembered that he won an election, which was marked by a very, very low turnout. I believe the turnout was just about 27% or something of that sort. So, uh, you know, uh, so uh, I think it's, it's safe to say that it, it was not really a very say widely attended, you know, massive win for this new president. And as he took office in his inaugural speech, Uh, He began by, uh, you know, apparently going off script and announcing the end of a fuel subsidy, which sparked this massive amount of chaos in the country, fuel subsidy, a huge part of uh, Nigeria's, a very important part of Nigeria's economy right now. And it's kind of ironic because Nigeria has huge oil reserves, uh, but unfortunately, and it has four refineries, all of which apparently are out of commission. Uh, So there's a huge amount of money spent on fuel imports and because the overall living situation is so bad because inflation is so high, fuel subsidies are very extensive. And now government after government has been saying that these fuel subsidies need to be removed. We're not able to spend any money on uh, education. We're not able to spend any money on health. You know, the fuel subsidies are just taking too much. But as Jiro uh, and others have pointed out in that interview, uh, when you say fuel subsidies, it's not about you know rich people in cars as much as everyday people who use generators uh, because so much of... Commerce is, for instance, dependent on these generators. So uh, after the president made this off-the-cuff announcement, there was complete chaos, prices rapidly increasing. The administration quickly said, no, no, this is going to be implemented by the end of June. But that still doesn't really uh, solve the problem. And I think this goes back to the larger issue of what Bola Tenubu is intending to uh, you know, address in his term as the president of Nigeria. And it does seem like there is very little clarity on what his Agenda will be. Uh, he's succeeding uh, uh, Mohammed Buhari from his from his own party, uh, who and is believed to be more free market than Buhari was. So that's definitely not a good sign uh, for Nigeria. It's a kind of unfortunate because, like I said, there is no shortage of resources. It's really about not being able to invest in, for instance, say in the oil refineries. Uh, to make sure that these resources can be tapped. It is the inability to invest in uh, the population. In fact, Nigeria has a very young population, a rapidly growing population. However, there's a huge amount of unemployment. There's a large amount of migration as well. And, uh, you know, generally uh, things are... Uh, things are chaotic all over, and it does seem like even in its initial days, the government looked like it didn't have a plan with regard to appointments. So, uh, what usually happens in these circumstances, unfortunately, is that the government ends up going to the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund, and then continues privatization, continues removing subsidies, continues freezing uh, spending, and all this is definitely, definitely a bad sign. Uh, for nigeria which is one of the most important uh, economies in the continent as well so i think uh, you know a very important country to look forward for because of its location because of its population but right now it does not seem like the new government of Bola Tinubu really has too much of a, a alternative perspective the one we were talking about earlier in terms of how to address the issues of this important economy
1: so no kfon for nigeria on the table right now is what you're saying um There was actually quite startling news from Ukraine uh, because the Kharkovskaya hydroelectric dam uh, had a blast in the engine room and the dam collapsed, um, flooding perhaps as much as 80 different settlements around the region. And what's interesting about this blast and the destruction of the dam was almost immediately uh, all sides blamed the other. You know, in a war, this is what happens. When something like this happens, everybody blames the other person. Um, there is absolutely no doubt that this was not an accident. I mean, nobody has claimed that it could be an accident. Um, it is interesting that in October last year, the Russian government sent a démarche, a note, uh, to the United Nations Security Council warning that they have evidence that Ukraine is going to blow up the dam. Uh, that was interesting. This dam provides uh, the canal system to provide water for uh, Crimea. Also, of course, it provides irrigation to the breadbasket, uh, which is Ukraine. Um, you know, it's not really clear what's going on here. And a lot of people dispute things. War is the wrong moment to make definitive judgments about things like this. Um, I've covered wars from battlefields. And I can tell you that in the middle of of a war, nobody knows really what's happening. And and disinformation is as much a weapon of war as anything. However, uh, it is most likely uh, that this uh, catastrophe uh, was not necessarily conducted by the Russians, as most of the media is is saying. Although it's very hard to say, you know, perhaps it was. I don't know. Uh, What we do know is that nobody really conclusively knows what happened. But the net, net people who are hurt by this, of course, is a population in Crimea, which makes it sort of bizarre that the Russians would do this. Uh, interestingly, around the time of this explosion of the dam, a um, it really it's a significant issue. If it was done deliberately, it's a war crime. Um, by th- at the time of the explosion of the dam, Mr. Zelensky has been on a world tour. He was at the G7 meeting in Tokyo, stopped off in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, for the Arab League meeting. He was in Moldova for a meeting of the European Political Consultative Summit. Um, and at, around all this period, we're seeing some interesting developments. At the GlobeSec meeting, Emmanuel Macron of France, for the first time publicly, said that France should perhaps uh, allow Ukraine a path into NATO. Very interesting statement from Mr. Macron. You'll remember that in 2019, Mr. Macron called NATO brain dead. Apparently not any longer. Now Mr. Macron is basically repeating talking points coming out of Washington, D.C. Interesting that he's saying these things um, and that other Europeans are saying, let's hasten to bring Ukraine into NATO. Only Germany is hesitating, not on principle but merely saying, let's not bring um, Ukraine into NATO during the war. Well, I'm not sure what Germany's hesitation is, frankly, because they are saying we don't want NATO involved in the war. In fact, NATO is very much involved in the war. When Mr. Zelensky visited the United Kingdom, he visited Ukrainian troops who are training in a British military bases. Also, news reports come out now, rather almost at the level of rumors, that German troops might enter into Ukraine. Already it is 98% of military supplies entering Ukraine's forces come from NATO countries. Um, But yes, this dam, a terrible tragedy, whoever did it. Uh, Yes, there is now almost unanimous agreement in Europe to bring Ukraine into NATO. And yes, this underlies the fact that this really isn't a war between Russia and Ukraine, but a war between Russia and, and NATO. Dangerous times, friends. But at the same time, in Kerala soon, they'll all be able to watch our show. That's a little silver lining in a very, very orange-colored sky over New York City. You're with, give the people what they want. Brought to you from People's Dispatch. That's Prashant and Zoe. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. If you're not here next week, we'll be very upset. Over.